Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today, audio recordings take us inside the mind of the man who, perhaps more than anyone else, is influencing our new president's views of Islam, terrorism, and who we will and will not let into the country. Then, a look at the anti-Trump resistance inspiring mass protests. Is this the beginning of a Tea Party for the left? Is democracy sick, or is it just waking up? It's Thursday, February 2nd. Thank you. Let's start back in August. Today, we begin a conversation about how to make America safe again. Standing on a stage lined with American flags in Youngstown, Ohio. In the 20th century, the United States has defeated fascism, Nazism, and communism. Now a different threat challenges our world. Radical Islamic terrorism. Then-candidate Trump argued that the United States faced a threat on par with the greatest evils of the 20th century. Those who do not believe in our Constitution or who support bigotry and hatred will not be admitted for immigration into our country. Now, that view isn't the stuff of stump speeches. It's America's foreign policy. As the White House puts in place a sweeping immigration ban focused on Muslim-majority countries, one of our top investigative reporters has been digging around with a question. Where do our president's views on Islam come from? First of all, Scott, I want to ask you a very simple question. Can you summarize exactly what Trump's view of Islam is? No, I don't think so. My colleague Scott Shane has been writing about U.S. intelligence and terrorism for decades. My personal impression is that This is a guy who, very heavily shaped by the people around him, both during the campaign and and now at the White House, you know, two of the people who clearly have influenced him significantly are Michael Flynn. Islam is a political ideology. I don't see a lot of people screaming Jesus Christ with hatchets or machetes or or rifles. The retired lieutenant general who's now the national security advisor and who was one of the first, probably, you know, the first guy with a serious national security resume to uh, join the campaign and endorse Trump. And then, of course, Steve Bannon, 
you have an expansionist Islam and you have an expansionist China, right? They're, they they are motivated. They're arrogant. Uh, the president's strategist, who really seems to be a key player in a, any number of areas, uh, to the surprise of some people, including uh, national security. Thank you very much, uh, Benjamin, and I appreciate uh, you guys including us uh, in this. Um, and Scott, you've found some audio in which Steve Bannon talks pretty candidly and at length about Islam. We're, we're uh, speaking uh, from Los Angeles today, right across. So this is really uh, a fascinating talk, sort of a Q and A that he gave in the summer of 2014. Bannon was in L.A. and he talked by Skype to a conservative Catholic group meeting at the Vatican and specifically his repeated notion that sort of whether we know it or not, we and and by we, he sometimes refers to Judea, the Judeo-Christian West, because I believe the world and particularly the, the Judeo-Christian West uh, is in a crisis. And uh, we are at war an outright war against jihadists, Islam, Islamic fascism. And at one point he, he just says Islam and sort of puts it in the hmm. historic context of almost going back to the Crusades, you know, this kind of clash of civilization stuff. I think if you look back on the history of the Judeo-Christian West struggle against Islam, I believe that our forefathers... Some of it's on video, some of it's just on audio. And that that's why, you know, it might have a different sound. And I guess what's a little frustrating is it's never quite clear what he's talking about. Is he talking more about it? You know, is he talking about an ideological conflict? And also when he says we have to act right now, you know, it's urgent that we act. He never quite says what kind of action he's talking about. We're at the very beginning stages of a global conflict and that if we do not bind together as partners uh, with others in other countries that this conflict is only going to metastasize. They have a it's not entirely clear to me, and I imagine it's not clear to a lot of people listening to this, the extent to which the Bannon-Trump relationship is a bit of a Cheney-Bush relationship, where the kind of inexperienced leader is a vessel for the ideology and the views of the top advisor, which in this case is Bannon. Do you think that's the role he's playing, given what we've seen unfold in the past few weeks? You know, that's an interesting analogy. I mean, there's a huge difference, obviously, between Dick Cheney and Steve Bannon. Uh, Cheney had much more government experience. Bannon's sort of, you know, very much an outsider in Washington terms. But I think there is there is a bit of an analogy there. Interestingly, I did a profile of Bannon back in December, and Somebody told me that he was, you know, that Bannon had told his friends who had said to him, you know, Donald Trump, are you kidding me? That he would defend himself by saying he understood that Trump was an imperfect vessel hmm. for the ideas that he and his friends cared about, Bannon and his friends cared about, which, um, you know, I, th I thought perhaps uh, Donald Trump would take offense at. But the, you know, the concept of being used. Right? Yeah. Yeah. A vessel, something empty that you pour your ideas into. Right. But I think there's no question that some of that's going on. I mean, Trump is not a detail guy. He's not a reader. He's not a policy guy. And Bannon reads a lot, works very hard. He's informed about everything. 
whatever you think of his views, um, you know, he's certainly capable of explaining a whole lot. And you get the feeling, I mean, we have been told, my colleagues have been told that he was sort of the driving force behind both the issuance and the timing of the executive order that has caused such a furor uh, on immigration. Are there any counterbalancing forces or figures in this White House who would provide any kind of check on the Steve Bannon and I guess we call it the Bannon-informed view of Trump on Islam? Well, I think there are some more pragmatic voices. You know, Reince Priebus is probably one. Certainly General Mattis, who's become the Secretary of Defense. But I think in just procedural terms, Mattis supposedly was not given a chance to review this order before it went out. The same thing was true of the State Department and DHS and so on. So, and that's been treated by the press as, you know, kind of bungling and incompetence. But I think I sense, rightly or wrongly, the hand of Steve Bannon there too. When I was interviewing people who knew him well in December, one of them who'd worked with him on a film told me about when they were cutting this documentary and Bannon didn't want to cut anymore. And mm-hmm. he, they got in a little bit of an argument. Bannon literally turned over the table that they were sitting at. Wow. And this guy said, the thing about Steve is he wants to turn everything into a fight. And I think by issuing this order, getting people stirred up, getting the liberal snowflakes, as they call them, all you know, up in arms about how you know this is Islamophobic and this is un-American and so on, and rallying Trump's base to say, you know, he's doing exactly what he promised. He's tough. He's a strong leader. I mean, I think this is exactly what Bannon was seeking and probably what President Trump was seeking. Last weekend, when Trump and Bannon's philosophy became law, there was so much chaos that the Times opened a tip line, asking people how the unexpected immigration order had affected their lives. We received a flood of responses. Some were stories of friends and family detained. Others were supporters of the president happy with the law. One was both. Neil Fazell. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Can you just tell me about yourself? I'm an Iranian-American, a New Yorker. I've been living in the U.S. for uh, several decades now. Really, uh, this is home. And uh, I'm also a supporter of President Trump. So We've been talking about the executive order that the president signed, and I want to know what your thoughts are about it. Well, I I get it that it's so, you know, concerned about terrorism and all. I just uh, don't understand why it had to start with Iran. <laughs> well, you're Iranian, so I'm, I'm I'm imagining that it must complicate how you think about Trump, that he, that he did start there. A little bit, yeah. It, you see, uh, the reason I voted for him wasn't because of what he would do for Iran or to Iran. I thought he would be better for America. That's why I voted for him. Now, it happens that one of the things that he wants to do is to fight terrorism or make America safe uh, for Americans. But starting with Iran, right now I'm thinking this is just a learning curve. You have family who were affected by this ban? Yes. What happened? I have nephews who are uh, green card holders, are currently in Iran. They were planning to return to the U.S., 
mm-hmm. they may not be able to return, even though they had made all plans to come to America. Are these family members, are they supporters of Donald Trump? Um, I would say no. I think in my family, I'm, I'm the, <laughs> you know, I've lived in America the longest. Okay. And, uh, I, I would say that I'm, in my family, I'm the only one. And do they know that you support Donald Trump and voted for him? Yes. Has it been a source of tension? Not with my family, no, but it has been with my friends. In New York City? Yes. Tell me a little bit more about that. I've had friends, like I've had one friend who knew me for 10 plus years. We had traveled together. We had broken bread together. We'd gone on many road trips, cycling trips, whatnot. Basically, ceremoniously cut me off. (laughs) Threw me out of the circle of trust. Stopped being a friend? Yes, yes. Did he explain why? Um, Basically, if you're going to be a Trump supporter, we can't be friends. Which, uh, um, in fact, stories like this make you even uh, more pro-Trump because you think, okay, if people can, uh, if friendships are so fragile, then maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I'm right. Is that what you said? Uh, I, I said it in an email, but he didn't respond. Uh, I think I was, uh, well, you know, I think liberals are, as long as you agree with them, Everything is good, but if you disagree, and that, that wasn't the only person. I've had other, other people who, as soon as, uh, you know, Upper West Side or in New York City, really being pro-Trump is, uh, I, mean, I often don't mention it. But given that you're from Iran originally, are you okay with the idea that other people from your home country will not be given the same opportunity to come to the United States that you were given, whether it's temporary or longer? I'm from a generation in Iran that no country would open its doors. Okay, So they can always go to Canada, they can go to Germany, France, so they can go somewhere. I don't think they have a right to come to America. But I know that America has given me opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm thankful for it. And I think if a country is 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 has been gracious to you, has been kind to you, you need to return it. I really want to thank you and Good luck. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Facebook. It's been 25 years since lawmakers passed comprehensive internet regulations. But the internet has changed a lot since then, and it's time for an update. That's why Facebook supports updated internet regulations to set clear guidelines for addressing today's toughest challenges, like protecting privacy, fighting misinformation, reforming Section 230, and more. See their progress on key issues and what's next at about.fb.com regulations. After the overwhelming turnout for the women's marches the day after the inauguration, the question was if and how the emerging movement could be sustained. The if was helped along by Donald Trump, who keeps providing ammunition, like the immigration ban. The how has come from an unlikely group of Republicans. So, Kate, all of this fervor 
and protests that we're now seeing, what on earth does a Tea Party have to do with it? Well, it's definitely not coming from the same political <laughs> political part of the nope. spectrum that the Tea Party did. But I think there are so many people on the left now who are looking to the Tea Party for guidance. My colleague Kate Zernike literally wrote the book on the Tea Party. It's very similar in that we had, you know, the Tea Party came out of a, a particular moment. The economy was collapsed. President Barack Obama was new in office. We now have President Donald Trump. And this movement has come out of that. So they both came out of these sort of traumatic moments. And the tactics that were used by the Tea Party back in 2009, mm-hmm. 2010, how similar do they look to what we're seeing right now on the left? I think what we're seeing on the left is a recognition that ultimately protests are great and these massive movements that we've seen across the country and across really across the world are fine. But what you really need to do is translate that into political power. So we are already seeing, if you talk to people, we're already seeing people say, who can we get to run for office? How are we going to make something of this? We really need to make phone calls. It's not enough to just take to the streets in our pink hats. (laughs) And that's what the Tea Party did. Yeah. The Tea Party started with some protests, some initial protests in February of 2009. I want our leaders, the people like us, the left and the right, I want us to stand up to them and tell them, no, don't do this to us. You saw all these protest movements because that was an important way of getting people energized and excited about it. But really the, the importance of the Tea Party was all of these organizing meetings that they were having, you know, really figuring out how they were going to get political power and translate the incredible emotion of these rallies into political power. And how did they do that? I get this sense that there was no like particular handbook the Tea Party was mm. using, but they had a philosophy that said, organize, organize, be relentless. Yes, be relentless. So it is interesting that you talk about a handbook because um, people talk about how the Tea Party should be a model for the left. Well, the Tea Party saw the left as its model. The Tea Party looked to Saul Alinsky, who cons- who's considered the father of modern community organizing. And Saul Alinsky had this book called Rules for Radicals. And in it, he talked about the need to really confront people and to take control of the room. So when they went to these town hall meetings in the summer of 2009, the tactic was make your representative feel as uncomfortable as possible. Own that room. You know, look him in the look him in the eye, get in his face. Something to say to your constituents, sir? That's all. Stop spending our money. And I remember those scenes. I mean, they were they were truly agonizing to watch. Are we starting to see anything resembling that, you know, in terms of These protesters not just going to an airport or going to the mall in Washington, but starting to show up like in the fabric of the lives of our lawmakers? Yeah. So a few days ago, I, out of curiosity, I'd heard about this group in New Jersey that was going, they meet at a local Starbucks and they marched to their congressman's office. It's Rodney Freelingheisen. He's a Republican. He's head of the, new head of the House Appropriations Committee. So a really powerful position. And they started out with about 25 people, largely women, on a Friday morning at 11 o'clock. They now have 100 people going and they go to his office and they stand there very politely the way the Tea Party did and they make their point and they obey all the rules that the the guards there set. But they are there to make themselves heard and they want to know why Rodney Freelinghausen will not have a town hall to talk to them about health care. Frankly, going out there and kind of name checking all the ways that they resemble the Tea Party, I started to think that this has mobilized faster than the Tea Party. Certainly these rallies that we have seen are much bigger than anything we saw in the early days of the Obama administration with the Tea Party. Right. Kind of nonstop. So this does feel like a chaotic moment, and to hear it online, especially on social media, there is a kind of end times of democracy vibe. But I guess if we step back and look at a democratically elected new president passing laws, certainly creating a lot of upheaval, courts are responding, protesters are massing, 
is it possible that everything we're seeing is democracy operating exactly as it's supposed to? I have to say, going to this recent event in New Jersey was, I don't know, maybe exhilarating is the wrong word, but you feel the energy in the same way that I felt the energy of the Tea Party protest. And it's messy and it's loud, but it is what it's supposed to be. Tea Party activists protesting in the front yard of their local congressman in 2009. That's about it for The Daily. Here is what we're watching. Yesterday on the show, we profiled President Trump's new pick for the Supreme Court, Judge Neil Gorsuch. As Democrats in the Senate strategized how best to block his nomination, Trump advised the Republican leadership. I would say, if you can, Mitch, go nuclear. I asked my colleague, Matt Flegenheimer, who covers Congress, what it even means for the Senate to go nuclear. He called from the Capitol and left a voicemail to explain. So as uh, David Axelrod, former Obama advisor, tweeted earlier, go nuclear is not necessarily the phrase you want to hear from Donald Trump if you're worried about his presidency. Uh, In this case, it's not especially likely that anyone will die a a fiery death of any sort over a procedural change in the Senate. Um, What do we actually mean here is that Senate Republicans could decide to change the rules uh, if they're so inclined if they're faced with the Democratic filibuster of the nominee, which will allow them to confirm him through a majority vote instead of requiring 60. Um, so it's a very big deal uh, in the Senate, and not especially likely to lead to an apocalypse in the Capitol. Meantime, in the battle already underway in the Senate, Republicans managed to muscle one of President Trump's more controversial cabinet picks past Democratic resistance. Rex Tillerson, the former head of Exxon, will be the Secretary of State, but he'll make history as the Secretary of State with the most votes against him. Republicans may lose the fight for Trump's Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, as two Republican senators turn against her. Her last and best chance may be a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Pence. Finally, as a promise that we'll talk about more than just politics on this show, Beyonce announced she's pregnant with twins, with a photo on Instagram that's just better seen. But here goes. She's wearing a bridal veil and a bra. She's kneeling before a sea of flowers. My colleague Jenna Wortham deconstructs. Beyonce is exquisitely deliberate in the way she chooses to portray herself as a Black woman and the way she chooses to represent what family and her Black family means to her. And this picture is definitely an extension of that. I also think she's clearly more than a couple months pregnant, which is really interesting to me because that means she waited until February 1st to announce it, the beginning of Black History Month. Right. It's been a very dark time for people of color. Beyonce's got twin lights of hope and optimism in her belly, and she wants us to know. I mean, it's an image that is bringing a lot of people joy right now. I'm Michael Barbaro. I'll see you tomorrow.
With no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, and an app that lets you bank anytime, anywhere, choosing Capital One is like the easiest decision in the history of decisions. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC.